uh, growing and learning together. Well, we are continuing on a series that we kicked off last week based on the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, and he taught them to pray that the will of God and the kingdom of God that's in heaven, as it is in heaven, that it would be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so we are talking about heaven and a series on heaven. And the first four weeks is about our heart, our head, our hand, and our hip, which is compensation. We're going to look at that in a couple weeks. Uh, next week, our very own Tim Chantier, a missionary back from New Guinea. Uh, we're rotating Tim into the speaking schedule, and he's going to be preaching next week. You do not want to miss this. The man is just a, a, just a fireball for Jesus, and uh, he's, going to, he's just going to bring the Word of God with power next week, talking about heaven influencing our hand and influencing every area of our life. So the first four weeks of this series is about heaven's influence on earth, heaven's influence on our lives, on our heart, our mind, our hand and our hip and our, our lives. And then the second half of this series is about what it's like in heaven. There's a lot of myths. There's a lot of mysteries. There's some people that aren't looking forward to heaven. They think it's a boring place and clouds and harps and angels and, and doldrum. And so we're going to talk about myths and we're going to expose mysteries and we're going to talk about mirrors and how many things that we see here are actually, the Bible teaches, glimpses and glimmers of what we're going to see in heaven. And you're going to begin to realize that there, the Bible teaches much more about heaven than most of us realize. I recommended a book last week I want to recommend again. It's the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Some of you have picked that up. I want to continue to encourage you to get that book and read it. It will renew your mind, transform and wreck your heart, and you will thank me for getting that book and reading it. So we're on this eight-week series. Uh, let's kick off with a quote by C.S. Lewis that we touched on last week, and it will be the launching board for this week. A powerful quote about heaven. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world, were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And I would agree with the words of C.S. Lewis. We talked about last week, we looked at Paul and, and his words in 2 Corinthians. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn back there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to we're going to revisit some verses that we touched on last week, and then we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11. But if you want to go to 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 4 and 5, we're going to consider a couple verses that we looked at last week. Because these chapters that Paul writes, he says some really crazy soup kind of things. I mean, he says stuff that just should completely... Uh, just rip our head open and, 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 and mess with our brains. And he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's writing about life from an eternal perspective. And so it's valuable as we read these words to kind of try to climb inside of Paul's brain and see what he's seeing. And begin to try to think the way that he thinks. Because he doesn't think like most people. And he sees some things, and he sees life from a radically different perspective 
that you and I need to begin to see life from. So, let's put up, this is just a, 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 a compilation of several verses beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul begins in verse 7 or 8, and he says, we have been persecuted, we have been harshly treated, we have been cast down, but we're not destroyed. In fact, Paul says, we're not only not destroyed, we are of good cheer. Even though every single day we are facing imminent death. Life was so arduous, persecution was so intense, Paul wasn't, he wasn't exaggerating, he was saying literally our lives are at risk every day, but we are of good cheer. Now just stop right there and think, wow, that's a different perspective. How in the world could Paul write such a thing? Well, if all we think about is 50 or 60 or 70 years on this planet and we die and we return to dust, these words make no sense. In fact, scriptures make no sense. But one of the reasons this book is God's book, one of the reasons this book is unlike any other book on the planet, that this is a supernatural book, is because it tells us about time before earth began. It tells us about creation and where we came from. It tells us prophetically not only about the past but about the future, not only of this planet and this life but about the next life. It tells us about heaven. It tells us about a new heaven and a new earth. It tells us about things millenniums into the future. And when we buy into that, when we begin to think and believe what this book says about the future, our thinking begins to change, our motivations begin to change. That's what we looked at last week. Paul said our ambition, our drive, our core motive is to please Him. Now, he says, we're being given over to death daily. But he describes this persecution and this difficulty as a momentary light affliction. What an extraordinary perspective. He says all this trouble, it's momentary, and it's light, and in fact, it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Let me reword that. It's producing for us a weighty, eternal benefit or reward. Paul connected adversity and persecution and difficulty today. And he said, this, it's okay, because it's producing something of extraordinary value. That's why I can be of good cheer. That's why I'm happy when people are throwing rocks at my head and trying to kill me. Now that is some radical thinking right there. Can somebody poke your neighbor and say he's telling the truth today? Paul says momentary light affliction, eternal glory, far beyond comparison. Here's the key. While we look not at the things which can be seen, because the things which can be seen are temporal. They're temporary. They're transient. They're subject to change. He said, but we have to look at the things which are eternal. The things that can't be seen. Now here's a question. How do you look at something invisible? <laughs> That's kind of a challenge, isn't it? 
Paul says all this is working for us an eternal way to glory. It's producing a reward for us while we look at what can't be seen. So we ought to stop and kind of say, either this guy's nuts or he sees something that I don't see. What is it that Paul sees? What is it that he looks at? That's why we, we roll into chapter 5 and he makes a statement. And let's go to the next slide. He says, we are of good courage and we prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Just prior to these verses, he says something that all of us are familiar with. He says, we walk by faith and not by sight. How do you see things that can't be seen? How do you look at things that are invisible? You have to look at them not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. You look at them through the eyes of faith. You believe the words of Jesus, and you believe the words of this book, and you begin to see things with your spiritual eyes that your natural eyes can't see. Paul says, all these things are producing an eternal weight of glory. These things, we are of good courage. This is another radical statement. We prefer to be dead. We prefer to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord. That, my friends, is a radical statement. Paul's saying, I prefer to be in the next life. I prefer to take off what he calls a tent, this physical body. He said, that's my preference. I would rather do that. To live as Christ, to die is gain. It's far better. Paul looked at life through the lens of eternal life. And that's exactly what you and I need to do if we're going to be successful in this life. He says, therefore, we have as our ambition to please Him. We talked about that last week, that heaven influences my heart. It influences my ambition and what drives me. And then Paul went on to say this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or be rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he's done. We're going to talk about rewards in two weeks. Tim's going to talk about our hand and practical Christianity and how eternity influences us here today in the now. So Paul said some extraordinary things here. And uh, he, he tells us we have to be looking at what can't be seen. We have to look at invisible things. Andy Stanley has written a book that is uh, a bestseller. It's a popular book. It's called The Best Question Ever. Some of you have probably read the book. Maybe you've heard him teach and preach on the subject. But his book is entitled The Best Question Ever. And he submits that the best question ever is asking ourselves daily what is the best thing, what is the wise thing for me to do in light of past experience, present circumstances, and future hopes and dreams? In other words, we don't make decisions in a vacuum. We make the best decisions based on past experience, present circumstances, and based on future hopes and dreams. So the best question ever is what do I do in light of these, of these realities? What Andy is suggesting is that we make decisions in part based on the future, based 
on a long-range perspective, based on the eternal. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul and what he's telling us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Let's look at three or four powerful verses. We're going we're gonna to allow Moses to put on a clinic this morning. We're going to go to these the same thoughts we're going to read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. And we're going to examine a few verses that talk about the life of Moses and some decisions that he made and why the example that he lives is an extraordinary clinic for you and I in terms of our decision making. Making better decisions so we can live with fewer regrets. And we can learn something from Moses. So Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to pick up in verse 24, we're going to read through verse 27. Grab the Bible in front of you, grab your smartphone, grab your tablet, look at it. You can look at the big screen, I've got it for you. Let's read it together. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now that sounds a lot like what we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul said, while we look not at the things which can be seen, but the things which can't be seen. Now, uh, Jason, if you would go back to the uh, verse 24, and just leave it up there, and we'll look at that. And we're going we're gonna to take this one verse at a time, and we're going to extract four keys to making good decisions. Four keys on how the eternal, on how heaven should influence my decision making from the life of Moses. And the first one is this. The first has to do with the decision to refuse. There's four action verbs in these verses that I want us to, to pull out of the text and to incorporate into our lives. The first verse says that by faith Moses, when he'd grown up, he refused something. He said no to something. What is it that he said no to? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now again, if we just if we freeze frame this and we read these verses from a conviction, from a from a perspective or a philosophy that there is no such thing as eternal life. That there is no such thing as the next. If if we look at these verses in that context, Moses was a madman. He'd lost all of his marbles. He was crazy, he was insane, he was mad. His decisions and, and what he valued make no earthly sense. However, when you read these words in light of eternal reality, in light of the fact that he was living for something larger than himself, that he was investing in a certain future, then they make a lot of sense. So first of all, good decision making is saying no to certain things. He refused, actually he refused something that sounds pretty good. Doesn't it? 
I mean, being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, after all, Pharaoh was worshipped as God. Pharaoh was the wealthiest human being on the planet. Now we could try to draw some analogies and say what would it be like to be the son or the daughter or an adopted son or daughter of Bill Gates or Donald Trump or, 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 or one, of the, uh, 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 one of the princes of the, uh, of the Emirates. You know, we, we could try to think in that. But their wealth doesn't come anywhere near to the wealth of Pharaoh's house. And Moses made a calculated decision to refuse to be identified with Pharaoh. That's a pretty radical decision. He said no to some things that we would look at from an earthly standpoint and, and envy him. And say, if only I could be like Moses. If only I could have those connections. If only I could have that status and the access to that wealth and that influence, that would be a dream come true. And yet Moses willingly, calculatedly, walked away from it. Wow. He refused. Why is that? He refused to identify himself with Egypt. Egypt in the Scripture is always a type of this world. The Bible talks about Satan being the prince of this world. He was a Hebrew at heart. He would make a calculated choice that he was going to identify himself with the people of God rather than the king of this world. And we look at his decision-making process. He said no to some things. Anytime you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So that's principle number one to making good decisions. It reminds me of some history that I read about Alfred Nobel. Some of you know Alfred's story. You know a little bit about his a little bit about his background. He refused to be identified with his past. Now he was a Swedish chemist. He made millions back when millions was more like billions, possibly even trillions. He became a multi-millionaire because he invented dynamite and explosives. And he sold them to governments that used them in war. So he had a large market. He became a multimillionaire. And Alfred's brother, Ludwig, died. And when they wrote the obituary, they made a mistake. And they wrote about Alfred instead of Ludwig. And they wrote, among other things, in his obituary, they described him as a man who became rich from, quote, enabling people to kill each other in unprecedented quantities. And when he read his obituary, which was a mistake, when he read his own obituary, it rocked him. And he, it totally shook him to the core. And he realized that his legacy was going to be a legacy of human destruction. And so he resolved that he was going to spend the rest of his life writing a different obituary. And what he started to do, he used his millions for all kinds of humanitarian effort to take care of those that were helpless, that were hopeless, that were in need. He literally spent his millions on, on, on reaching out to and ministering to and helping hurting 
humanity. Nine million dollars he spent editing his role in history. And of course, part of those efforts resulted in what we know today as the Nobel Peace Prize. Right? And so, he had the extraordinary opportunity to read about the end of his life before the end of his life. And to revise that obituary. And that's really what we're talking about today. We're saying, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, said death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Eternity should have influence on the earthly. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what Moses is modeling here in these verses in Hebrews chapter 11. So the first principle of making good decisions is the decision to refuse. The decision to say no to certain things that may be good in and of themselves, but they're not the best things. The second factor or ingredient or quality in making good eternal decisions is the decision to choose. The Scripture tells us, first of all, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said no to some things, but then he said yes to some things. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now that, that's, that's a two. This too is quite a statement. He said no to all the treasures of Egypt. And he embraced rather ill treatment with the people of God. He identified himself with the Hebrews. They were slaves. That sounds a lot like what Jesus Christ did. God identified himself with slaves. Slaves to sin, you and I. That's what Moses did. He chose to identify himself with the people of God. He made a calculated choice. Why would he choose ill treatment? Why would he choose a life of difficulty? Why would he choose a life of hardship? Think about the life of Moses. He left the lap of luxury. He spent 40 years in the wilderness herding sheep. Then he sees a burning bush. He goes as the deliverer of God's people. We read about the amazing plagues and the extraordinary leadership of, of deliverance of, of, of the Hebrews out of Egypt. And then he spends 40 years wandering around a wilderness with a bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked people multiple times that wanted to stone him, that grumbled against him, that complained about his leadership. No matter what he did, they weren't happy with him. Can you imagine spending 80 years of your life like Moses? He chose that life. Why would anyone in their right mind make a choice like that? Because he wasn't making it based on just the earthly. It only makes sense if he had an eternal perspective. And the decisions that you and I will make because of our eternal perspective will not make sense to many other people. Maybe you've already had the conversation. Why do you even go to church? Why do you waste your time on Sunday morning? You could be sleeping in. You could be hanging out at the coffee shop. 
You could be getting to the game earlier. What, what, what are you wasting time? Giving money to the church? You know the only thing they're interested in is your money. Why in the world would you do something insane like go on a mission trip? Are you nuts? When you could go on a, on a real vacation, you're going to spend money going to a garbage... What, what's wrong with you? Why are you listening this morning? You're going to make a lot of decisions in light of eternity that aren't going to make sense to a lot of people. People are going to think you're crazy. The key to good decision is, number one, refusing. Number two, choosing. Embracing. Buying into. James Barnett has an extraordinary story. He was college educated, had a great job, with J.P. Morgan Chase. He was, had a six-figure income. He was raised in a Christian home, and something was gnawing at him. He would, he would read the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and he knew he wasn't fully identifying with and living out the words and example of Jesus. He went on a missions trip, he went to Nicaragua. He went, similarly, we're going to Ecuador. Coincidentally, he went to a garbage dump in a city in Nicaragua. And he was ministering to the people who lived there. And while he was there, he met, he met a gal by the name of Ruby. Ruby would minister to the people at the garbage dump. And, and they became friends the week that he was there. And Ruby challenged him in several ways. She said to him, she said, Son, the Lord wants you to know that you haven't been fully obedient to Him. And the article I was reading said that he got mad at her because he had been basically good his whole life. He'd been raised in a Christian home. He'd, he'd had a, a pretty impressive record of community service, helping the poor and helping the homeless. And he was upset with her. He was mad at her. How could you tell me that I haven't been fully obedient? I left my job to come to this country and serve people in a garbage dump. But she said, you haven't been fully obedient to the Lord. She said this, your obedience isn't defined by what you don't do, but, what, but by what you do for the world your God so loved. I thought that is a powerful statement. We are not defined by what we don't do. As believers, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't kill people. You know, there's certain things we don't... Well, no. That's, that's not Christianity. Christianity is known by the things we do do out of a motivation for a love for God and to, to, to serve and bless other people. Can you say amen? And so he resolved on this missions trip that he was going to obey the words of Jesus, he was going to go home, he resigned his position, he sold every earthly possession he had on Craigslist, and he started living among the homeless. Loving them, serving them, buying them rain ponchos when it was cold and raining, giving them warm socks when the weather was cold, he would do that for nine months out of the year, and then he started entrepreneurially a business, a t-shirt company, 
and he, and he designed some t-shirts that he could sell so that people could buy the t-shirts and help fund his ministry to the homeless. Why would somebody do that? That's madness. You have a good education, you have a good job, six figure. Why would somebody do that? Because he wanted to live out radically the word and teaching of Jesus. And because he had an eternal perspective. He knew that there was eternal reward. That's why he would do something crazy like that. Wow. So first of all, Moses, in good decision making, he refused some things. Secondly, he chose intentionally to do some things that to the natural mind didn't make a lot of sense. He chose to identify and to, to, to walk a road of hardship and difficulty. And as Christ followers, the Scriptures teach us all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. We will encounter some adversity and difficulty. And we embrace that to do the will of God. We embrace that knowing it produces an eternal weight of glory. Knowing it produces a reward. Now principle number three has to do with this. It's the decision to value things that are valuable from an eternal perspective. Look at what the Scriptures tell us. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Let's go to the next verse. Considering the reproach. The word considering is actually the word valuing. So we could say valuing the reproach of Christ, greater riches or more valuable than the treasures of Egypt. Here's the key. Because he was looking into the future. How could he do that? Because he was looking at the reward. What See, Moses' value system was radically different than most of our value system. He counted reproach and identifying with God and His kingdom and His purposes and His plan as more valuable than worldly wealth. Let me draw an analogy. Let's go back to the Civil War. And let's say you were living in the South and that you had a considerable amount of wealth in Confederate currency. And you somehow knew the end of the war. You knew that the North would prevail. And you knew that your Confederate currency eventually, in fact, imminently, was going to be worthless. Wouldn't it make sense to invest that Confederate currency into what would become the longer-term currency. That would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? It would make total sense to give up that short-term benefit for a longer-term benefit. You, you, you give up the, the lesser value for a greater value. That makes total sense. Nobody in this room would do differently if you knew those facts. I submit to you this morning, we know those facts. 
Everything that you and I have in this life is Confederate currency. It has a time stamp. And here's, here's the gig. We don't know the time We don't know the expiration date. We don't know when we're going to get called to the north as believers. When we're going to step over the line of the earthly into the eternal. And we can only use Confederate currency today. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. We can use Confederate currency today for short-term priorities. But that would not be wisdom. So that comes back to Andy Stanley's question. What's the best question ever? What is the wise thing to do in light of the past, present circumstances, and future realities? It only makes sense to use Confederate currency and invest it in a way that's going to benefit me in the longer term. That is the thinking that Moses is using for his value system. That's how he could value reproach, rejection. He could value that above the treasures of Egypt because he knew the treasures of Egypt were merely Confederate currency. They were short-lived. And in that light, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Sure it does. Let me ask you a question before we go to principle number four, and we'll be closing here in just a few minutes. What does it mean when the preacher says in conclusion, absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> but, but you're hopeful. You're hopeful. Let me ask you this question. What if the next 24 hours, it is 11.48 a.m., right? What if, beginning right now, each of us had 24 hours and how we lived, how we invested our time, how we invested our money, how we invested our talents for a 24-hour period determined our socioeconomic status for the next 1,000 years. I want you to think about that for a minute. How would you spend that 24 hours? I would be willing to wager, and I'm not a betting man, I'd be willing to wager you probably wouldn't even sleep in that 24-hour period. Most of us, because... In the context, in that context, sleep doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You're kidding me? I can rage for 24 hours. I'm talking blow it up for 24 hours if it means the next thousand years. Are you listening this morning? Here's the reality. That's life. It may not be a 24-hour period. It might be 70 years. Good financial planners will tell you, project out 30 years and begin to prepare for retirement. Make decisions today that incrementally will help you 30 years from now. I submit to you that 30 years isn't any different than 30 days in light of eternity. We would do well to financially plan for 30 million years. We would do well to invest our days and our lives and our time and our resources in what is going to produce benefit and increase 30 million years from today. Let's have that perspective. Because then life is a mere 24-hour period. And that's the truth. 
That's reality. That's not a good analogy that the preacher came up with to try to stimulate us to some crazy notion. This is reality this morning. These things make sense, what Moses did, in the light of eternity, don't they? They make perfect sense. So that's why they're keys to us making good decisions today. So principle number four. We said he refused some things. He chose some things. He valued a certain way. And lastly, what did he do? He endured some things. It says, by faith he left Egypt. He didn't fear the wrath of the king. He was enduring by seeing or as seeing him who is unseen. He had his eyes fixed on somebody. He saw something out in his future that motivated him, that compelled him. Why does the Olympic athlete dedicate 14, 16, 18 years of their lives? I remember Michael Phelps saying after he retired from swimming, he said, every single day of my life for 14 years I was in the pool. Nobody in this room can even begin to fathom that. Why did he do that for Olympic gold? Why did he endure? Because he had his eyes on a prize. Hello? That's why we all do it. Moses had his eyes on a prize. He endured by seeing him who couldn't be seen. The God that he served. He knew that he had a short time. And he was determined to invest and to live and to prioritize and to value based on eternity. And it transformed how he lived, how he thought, what his motivations were. And that's what we're talking about this morning. He endured. Florence Chadwick, let me, let me finish with her story. Uh, she is famous as a long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel. And then she was the first woman to swim the English Channel there and back. And in 1952, she set a goal to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California, and to be the first woman that accomplished that. The day that she endeavored to do this in 1952, it was a very cold day, it was rainy, it was very, very heavy, thick fog. She swam, and she swam, and she swam. It, the fog was so thick at times, she couldn't see the boats that were attending her. The, th the fog was that thick. And after 15 hours in the water, she gave up. She was exhausted. She could swim no more. They pulled her cold body up out of the ocean into the boat. Her mother was there. Her mother had been encouraging her, cheering her on. And when she got in the boat, they told her, they said, Florence, she said, how far did I go? They said, you were only a half a mile from the shore. And she said this, she said, I could have made it if I could have just seen the shore. I, I, I know I could have done it. And you know there's a principle in that as we close this morning. This is why eternity has to be clear. We have to be able to see the shore. Why? Because we'll refuse certain things that we ought to be refusing. We'll be choosing certain things we ought to be choosing. We'll be 
valuing things that we ought to be valuing and we'll be enduring some things that are tough, that are hard, that don't make a lot of sense in this life, but will have great reward in the next life. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads in a word of prayer and reflection. Just take a few minutes to just reflect on what's been shared this morning. and We're going to transition into this closing song and transition into a time of prayer and ministry. I'm going to invite Jeff Rouse to come to the platform. I want us to pray together for our missionaries, the Burkettes, that are in the Ukraine, that are facing some unprecedented challenges. I want us to pray together. I want to open up these altars this morning if you want to respond to the message. Maybe you've never surrendered your life and faith to Jesus Christ. Today could be your day. Brand new start. Maybe you want to just come to the altar in response to the truth that you've heard this morning and you want to recalibrate some things in your heart and your life. That's okay. It's, that's what a response time is all about. I'm going to invite the elders. I'm going to invite the, the pastoral staff and spouses. I'm going to invite life group leaders and See our leaders. I'm going to invite you to come forward and, and be part of the ministry team this morning. We're going to pray for one another. If you've got needs, if you've got challenges, you want somebody to pray with you, maybe you're facing a, a, a very serious need in your life and you want somebody to partner in prayer with you, that's what this response time is going to be all about this morning.